1908, the Russian Empire. The 20th century was a period of great change and dynamism for Russia. Little did they know it, but within a decade the old Tsardom, which had ruled Russia for hundreds of years, would be swept away in a tide of revolutionary fervour. The mad monk Rasputin, who could well get his own discussion, arrived at the Tsar's court two years ago and has been creating quite the stir as he claims he can mystically heal the haemophiliac heir to the throne. Elsewhere in the empire, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known as Lenin, is plotting the overthrow of the government. Both at home and abroad, he's seeking to fan the sparks of discontent into a roaring flame of revolution, seemingly at any cost. Suffice to say, it's a strange time in Russia, and everyone can feel a strange sort of tension in the air. Those of a superstitious disposition would likely be looking for some sort of sign of things to come. And those of that disposition might argue that they got one. 30th of June. Written in the Russian Julian calendar as the 17th of June, Evenki tribesmen and Russian settlers in the region northwest of the Lake Baikal in south-central Siberia spot something odd in the sky. A large column of bluish light moving across it. It's bright, brighter than the sun, and at just a quarter past seven in the morning, that's nothing to sneeze at. Ten minutes later, a sound is heard. An explosion, louder than an artillery piece, rocks the sparsely populated forests and mountains. Then, a shockwave. The locals feel a sudden heat wave, so hot they tear their clothes off for fear of catching fire. Those looking at the sky say that it's split open and a column of fire erupted from the blue beam. People are thrown off their feet, windows shatter, objects are knocked off of tables and shelves. If it were an earthquake, it would be a five on the Richter scale at the centre, enough to knock down a small building. Locks are broken off doors and jets of hot air scorch paths into crop fields. And these effects are being felt hundreds of kilometres away. The epicentre of the explosion is something else entirely. Washington DC, the same day. A seismic station can't believe the reports that are coming in. The machines are telling them that there's been some kind of disturbance, albeit a very weak one, but it hasn't occurred anywhere in the continental US or even in the Americas. Some quick calls and telegrams around the world to their contemporaries confirm the same strange phenomenon. London, Copenhagen, Berlin, even Batavia in the Dutch East Indies, modern-day Jakarta, Indonesia. Whatever happened down in Russia was no mere minor tremor. It's been resonating around the world. And the effects don't end when the sound does. For days after, across Europe and Asia, the sky glowed with an unusual hue, most noticeable at nighttime. What on earth happened? Now, the area of the blast is a different story, but not one that would get an official telling until 1927. That's the thing about Siberia. It's one of the most isolated regions in the entire world, even more so back in 1908, when train lines were almost non-existent and those towns that did exist were small backwaters with very little in the way of genuine infrastructure. The scientific community would quickly recognise that the incident was some sort of heavenly body having fallen to earth, and the passage of time, fears of the world was ending, quickly subsided. Newspapers around the world did comment on the event, but most of the information was localised to Russia, and with the coming First World War and Russian Revolution, most people in that country had bigger fish to fry. So, we jump back in in 1927. Now that Stalin is in control of the Soviet Union, there's major changes going on. His paranoia results in the increase in the construction of gulags, prison camps where his rivals, or anyone that looked at him funny, or anyone that didn't, were sent. 
but the reign of terror has brought with it some measure of political stability for the academic class. Those who haven't been purged as bourgeoisie influences can get back to work after the tumult of the war and the revolution. So, Russian mineralogist Leonid Kulik hires some of the Evenki tribesmen to take him to the area of the blast. Kulik had gone in 1921, but he didn't go to the central blast zone. It's been a long time, but the magnitude of the blast was such that the meteorite that must be left would be substantial enough to weather the test of time. Him and his team are expecting to find the heavenly body and study it, to fuel the growing fascination of the Soviet Union with space. But what they find instead shocks them. There's no meteorite, or at least not one that they can see. Instead, a blasted heath nearly eight kilometers across stands before them. The trees are all upright. It's only outside the zone that they've been knocked down, all facing away from the direction of the blast, and the leaves and branches have all been shorn away, the bark scorched. There's no crater either. If something did land in that area, it left no trace of having been there. Didn't even leave a ditch. You get a bigger ditch throwing an anvil off a roof into the mud, let alone a blast that broke windows hundreds of kilometers away and has created the earthly manifestation of the concept of desolation. Kulik was intrigued. This would mean, of course, going back to the Presidium empty-handed, having found no meteoric iron, but it did present a fascinating scientific question. The blast was undoubtedly a descended heavenly body, lights in the sky, a big boom and a shockwave, a blast radius clearly visible, but no impact crater and no meteorite. How could this be? Kulik's study prompted increased interest in this strange phenomenon. The man himself didn't live to see the changes in research, dying of pneumonia in a German POW camp in the Second World War. But in the 1960s, another expedition surveyed the total area of damage amounting to some 2,150 kilometers squared in destruction. The area wasn't a circle either. It was shaped a bit like a butterfly, with a wingspan of 70 kilometers. Between the 50s and the 70s, the existence of spheres of silicate and magnetite, microscopic rock minerals, were found in the soil and tree stumps around the blast zone. When examined, they were found to contain high concentrations of nickel relative to iron, strongly suggesting an extraterrestrial origin. But the scientific community remains divided on an explanation. An area nearly double the size of London was burnt to cinders, but with the trees left standing. The explosion was a thousand times the Hiroshima bomb in its power, about the same as Castle Bravo and one-third the size of the Tsar Bomber, the biggest man-made explosion of them all. But the Tsar Bomber was specifically designed to be a Big Bang, made in 1961. This was a naturally occurring phenomenon, no rhyme or reason, that devastated an area the size of a major city. Is it any wonder that the scientific community is still puzzled and fascinated by the Tunguska event? Welcome to Demystified with Ashley Styles. Today we're discussing the Tunguska event, one of the biggest recorded explosions in history. Now, unlike all of those nuclear tests I mentioned before, this explosion happened way before the concept of a nuclear bomb was even a glint in Oppenheimer's eye. Back in 1908, in the backwoods of the Russian Empire, an explosion so violent that it flattened trees, smashed windows hundreds of kilometers away, threw people to the ground, and lit up the night sky for days to come, happened. Those horror fans amongst you listeners will get Colour Out of Space vibes by the ever-present famous writer and infamous racist H.P. Lovecraft, but the impact zone isn't quite as bad as his blasted heath I alluded to. You can see pictures of it today if you like. 
there's a roughly circular area that represents the initial blast zone, and then a larger area, the butterfly shape, of the larger blast radius. And it really is fascinating to see, as there's no crater. None whatsoever, only the natural lay of the land. It's basically a massive crop circle, which no doubt will have fueled some people's imaginations to extreme conclusions. But the basic story is this. On the 30th of June 1908, at around 7.17 in the morning, there was a blue column of light seen in the skies above south-central Siberia, in the Tunguska area. Then an enormous explosion that created a massive shockwave of warm air smashed windows and lifted people off of their feet. It's also thought that up to three people died in the explosion, but these deaths remain unconfirmed due to the nature of record-keeping in 1908 Siberia. Suffice to say, it wasn't great. The vast majority of what we know comes from the reporting at the time and from Kulik's expeditions. On those expeditions, he took great care to interview the locals about their perspectives, both the Russian settlers and the native Evenki tribespeople. Their stories are where we see the reports of people knocked down, windows shattered, objects knocked over, reported at the time by Siberian and Russian newspapers, and also recorded by Kulik. So there's not really much more to explore other than that. The mystery is about as face value as they come. No strange discrepancies in the recording of evidence, no serious numbers of disappeared people, just a massive boom. But that's not at all to devalue the size of that big boom. That's what makes Tunguska noteworthy. Typically, when we think of an asteroid or a meteorite hitting the Earth, we imagine a tiny, fist-sized rock hitting a small patch of ground, a, a shooting star. Or on the other end of the scale, a cataclysmic, world-ending event, like Michael Bay's Armageddon film. Tunguska registers, I suppose, somewhere between the two. The explosion itself was estimated to be about 15 megatons. That's 1,000 times the energy released by the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. The biggest recorded man-made explosive and explosion, the Tsar Bomber, created by the Soviet Union, was 50 megatons, but it could have been higher, and the power would have given third-degree burns 100 kilometers away from the bombsite. But that was a man-made weapon, specifically designed to be a big explosion, so whilst it is an insane amount of power, I posit to you that it's almost not worth comparing it to Dunguska, because when you put your mind to making a really big explosion, and you have the resources of a superpower, it's not really that hard to make one. The Tunguska explosion could, however, have been as big as 30 megatons. The low-end estimate is the safe guess, which is more commonly used, when all of the factors like altitude of the explosion, mass of the explosion, and other related factors are considered. Up until that point in history, the loudest explosion ever was Krakatoa, the volcanic eruption of 1883, which was estimated at around 200 megatons and 180 decibels. I've seen serious debate on which was bigger, the megatons of Krakatoa or the staggering 300 decibels of Tunguska at its source. They measure about the same at a distance of 180-ish. At that volume, 180 decibels, it's a bit like having a Boeing 747 take off on top of your head. 300 decibels, the maximum estimate of Tunguska, is 100 decibels more than the amount it would take to kill a person from the sound wave alone. So yeah, big explosion. What I'm trying to convey is that this was a big explosion, not some small event, an enormous blast that came seemingly from nowhere, and aside from the scorched landscape, left no traces. So, let's dive into the main theories behind the Tunguska event. The general scientific consensus, disputed but broadly a consensus, is that the explosion was caused by an airburst from an asteroid, some 6-10 kilometers into the Earth's atmosphere above the surface. Asteroids fall literally all the time. Despite the enormity of space, there is a surfeit of celestial bodies and objects all in motion, constantly colliding with one another and shooting off in every direction. 
Now, when an asteroid enters the Earth's atmosphere, it's generally going very, very fast. Of course, the exact speed depends on mineral composition, density, size, angle of entry, but an average speed guess would be something like 11 kilometers per second. Because they go so fast, asteroids or meteorites will usually burn up in the atmosphere. This is mostly because the immense pressure of the compression of the air in front of the asteroid, called ram pressure, generates an intense amount of heat which melts metal, it bursts rock, causes explosions. Interestingly enough though, modern observations have revealed that air bursts with energy comparable to nuclear weapons occur rather frequently. It's just that Tunguska was so much bigger than that. Famed American geologist Eugene Shoemaker gave the first estimate that 20 kiloton airbursts happen annually, and Tunguska-sized events, in the region of 15 to 30 megatons, happen roughly every 300 years or so. More recent estimates assert that 5 kiloton events happen once per year-ish, and Tunguska events are more like once per millennia. So very rare indeed. The largest asteroid explosion since Tunguska, i.e. that was which recorded with modern implements, also landed in Russia. The 2013 Chelyabinsk meteor was around half a megaton in terms of overall power. Based on the measurements of that meteor, around 20 meters across, weighing in the region of 1,200 tons, scientists estimate that the Tunguska meteor was somewhere in the region of 60 meters across, about the width of the average football field. These are, as far as I can tell, by the way, extrapolations from other meteors, since Tunguska, as far as we can tell, fully exploded and left no chunks, we can't be certain. The odd pattern of the trees, the ones at the epicenter stripped upright and the ones further away blown down proper, can be attributed to the airburst effect. Basically, imagine dropping a paint-filled balloon. The paint at the center will be smooth and concentrated whilst at the edges it flicks out and sprays. Not a fantastic analogy, I know, but the trees directly below the blast took the force from straight above directly down. The branches were shorn off, but the trunks were left upright because the force pushed downwards. The trees further away caught the blast at an angle, leading them to be knocked down. Now the main debate, really, in the scientific community as to whether Tunguska was an asteroid, composed of rock and metal, or a comet, composed of rock and ice. Comet advocates argued that it would explain why there was no trace of the impact, nor any impact crater, as the water would have evaporated and the rock left to explode. They also point to the glowing night skies, a common occurrence after comet trails are left. Asteroid advocates, however, argue that the explosion was far too large to have been a comet. Comets typically disintegrate much higher up in the atmosphere, owing to their relative weakness compared to asteroids. There are, however, dissenters to the asteroid theory. Some, like astrophysicist Wolfgang Kurt, argue that Tunguska was instead caused by a natural gas explosion from underground, rather than airburst from above. The basic idea is that natural gas, 10 million tons to be exact in this theory, leaked out of the crust of the Earth and then rose to an equal density height in the atmosphere, i.e. the natural gas rose to a height where it couldn't rise anymore. From there it drifted downwind, making a kind of wick shape like you'd find on a candle, which eventually found an ignition source, maybe lightning. Once the gas was ignited, the fire streaked along the wick and then down to the source of the leak in the ground, whereupon there was an explosion. Now, this doesn't explain why there was no obvious source on the ground of the explosion. There's a similar hypothesis called the Vernshot hypothesis, named for Jules Verne, which is used to explain some volcanic eruptions. It basically posits that some Earth extinction level events are caused by massive underground gas explosions. But in the Vernshot hypotheses, there's a significant amount of material launched into the air and the atmosphere. Now rocks, chunks of the Earth's crust, dust and debris. 
why then would there be no such similar reign of Earth with Tunguska? If it was a 10 megaton explosion at least coming up from the ground, you'd expect significant debris. Granted, the gas hypothesis posits that the flame travelled downwards on a column of natural gas, if it then reached the source of the leak, a contained pocket of natural gas underground presumably, the resulting explosion would surely kick a not insignificant amount of debris in the air which would have been noticed by those interviewed later. Now, they did state, to the theory's credit, that it appeared that the sky, quote, split open and caught fire, along with the resulting hot air, but I don't really buy it more than a meteoric airburst, to be honest. Now, being an unexplained explosion, it's no wonder that Tunguska has been a magnet for popular culture. The most popular spurious explanation I've seen is that it was the result of Nikola Tesla's death ray. This despite the fact that Tesla didn't mention his death ray plans until 1934 and lived and worked in the United States, as opposed to the Russian Empire in 1908. Aliens are always a popular one, especially for something like this. Big explosion from outer space? Gotta be aliens, right? But why? Why would advanced extraterrestrials make a massive boom in an area so sparsely populated that it wouldn't be properly examined for another two decades? It's not a warning sign or a communication if there's nobody there to see it. So, no, not aliens. It's never aliens. And for the record, as I may have said it before, I do believe aliens exist. Drake's equation and all that. The odds are good. But I also believe, to quote Tim Minchin, throughout history, every mystery ever solved has turned out to be not magic. Doesn't mean it couldn't be. Suspension of disbelief is a powerful thing, but my money won't ever be on aliens. So, what do I believe caused the Tunguska event? An asteroid airburst. It's Occam's razor, isn't it? I was quite taken for a bit with the idea that it was a comet, but the balance of evidence I think seems to favour an asteroid. Now, the comet theory does explain the bright nightlights, noctilucent clouds, caused by water vapour in the atmosphere. There's too many samples taken from the site of the event that are more consistent, however, with an asteroid or meteorite. Uh, metal elemental samples, mineral extracted from tree resin, that kind of thing. Plus, the 2013 Chelyabinsk asteroid was one, and that was similar to Tunguska. Outside of those two, the only other similar event we have recorded was the 1930 Kurasa River event, a seriously obscure probable meteorite airburst event that took place in Brazil in 1930. The evidence for Kurusa River is marginal. Some very old documents from the Vatican Observatory taken by a single investigator interviewing observers of the event. Estimates for that place its energy below one megaton, so maybe bigger than Chelyabinsk, but far smaller than Tunguska. Overall, though, Tunguska is one of those events that managed to pass history by. Aside from pop culture references and those specifically studying astrophysics, most people probably don't know about it. And to be honest, that isn't surprising, given that whilst it was recorded contemporaneously with the event itself, it was only when Leonid Kulik actually attempted to investigate what had happened nearly 20 years later that the extent of the magnitude was realised. And it wasn't like people didn't want to investigate, it was just in such a remote area that ultimately most people in 1908 felt that they had bigger fish to fry and forgot all about it. Sure, some massive world-shattering explosions are cool and all, but unlike Krakatoa, the effects were largely localised in Tunguska. Sure, DC seismologists recorded the blast and it broke windows hundreds of kilometres away, but with Krakatoa having killed over 36,000 people between the eruption and subsequent tsunamis and its other effects like reddened skies and global cooling due to volcanic ash in the atmosphere, it's easy to see why that got a lot more attention. 
Plus, Krakatoa was an island, well, is and was. You could theoretically sail there from basically anywhere in Southeast Asia. If you're a scientist wanting to study Krakatoa in 1883, you just need to hop a boat to Batavia and then Bob's your uncle. But if you're that American seismologist in Washington, D.C. who wants to see what that Big Bang was, well, firstly, you've got to get your hands on some Siberian newspapers reporting the explosion, and then you've got to head over to the largely unpopulated heartland of the Russian Empire, cold and foreboding though it may be, and hire some local guides to take you to the site. Let's hope you speak Evenki. Hence why Tunguska wasn't very well documented until much later. It happened in a part of the world that is literally synonymous with being remote and far away. Have you ever heard the expression, send them to Siberia, I sent it to Siberia? Siberia is a byword for somewhere that is very far away that things do not come back from. So that might be a lesson to take away from Tunguska. Try and remember that just because an event didn't affect you directly doesn't mean it isn't important. Imagine how much more research we might have had if the scientific community had been more invested in investigating Tunguska. As it stands though, we're not all that far away from finally piecing together the puzzle of the Tunguska event from what I've seen, so watch this space. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, researched and edited by me, Ashley Stars, with hosting by Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.